Parables with Power has been our series for uh, several months now, and we're just about to the end, maybe one more, maybe two. Today uh, is the parable of the householder. Officially, that's the name of the parable. If you look it up anywhere, that would be what it would be called. But to be more accurate, it is the parable of the evil tenant farmers is really what it's about. You know, when you just about think you've heard everything in this modern world of ours, some crazy new episode of left-leaning entitlement uh, comes to the forefront. Like this past week, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, they uh, decided that uh, we need to rebrand the name of the criminals in their area. They are no longer going to call them felons because we don't want them to feel bad, was their statement. And so uh, they are going to call them justice-involved people. (laughs) How crazy. An area that has one of the highest uh, crime rates, one of the highest homelessness rates in America, feel like that if we don't call them felons, maybe it'll help the situation. And uh, many today really have come to believe this kind of crazy uh, thinking that uh, we have these privileges that uh, are meant to be just privileges are instead our rights, regardless of our personal character, regardless of what effort we might put into something. And uh, unfortunately, it also carries a serious lack of appreciation for the blessings and the sacrifices of what others have made in our life, and especially what God has done for us. Like the college boy who, uh, Mr. Teacup, who uh, wrote back to his mom saying, Mom, I need new shoes. <laughs> My Gucci's are very dirty. And, uh, but you know, uh, we're going to see a case. I wish I could say entitlement is a new thing, but it's not. Today we're going to see a, uh, an event, a story, 2,000 years old, that is an egregious case of greed and ungratefulness, absolutely pure evil. And in this story, Jesus cuts perhaps the deepest he cuts, and he gets as frank as he gets in any parable for sure, in this parable with power. You know, the older I get, the more thankful I am. The more thankful I am for even small things. If you get up in the morning and you can still see or you can still breathe, you know, you thank the Lord. I had to smile as I read the story this week, and I may have shared it with you in the past, about the nursing home in Florida. The residents were having a group discussion about their ailments. One said, my arms are so weak I can even hardly lift a cup of coffee anymore. I know, I know, the other one said. My cataracts are so bad, I can't even see my coffee. I can't turn my head. My arthritis is so bad in my neck, said the third. Other people nodded weakly. My blood pressure pills make me very dizzy, said another. Well, I guess that's the price we have to pay for getting old, Winston, old man. Everybody was agreeing, and there was a moment of silence. The other one said, well, at least, thank God, we can all still drive. (laughs) Yep, thank God we can still drive. Yes, we do thank the Lord for blessings, all the blessings, whether it be driving or getting up in the morning. We're going to hear a story this morning that uh, you're not going to believe how ungrateful these people are. And Jesus uses it to remind us how we ought to have a heart of gratefulness to God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for the blessings. Thank you this morning, Lord, that we're not boarding up our windows as we... uh, 
approaching hurricane comes. Or thank you this morning, Lord, that there's not a fire burning down our area. Thank you, God, for the blessings. We so often, Lord, just take things for granted. Now, Lord, I pray that this morning all of us would go home and we would remember to just give thanks for everything and especially for our salvation so great. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Matthew, chapter 21. This is the last week of our Lord's life. It is Monday or Tuesday in that week. His week uh, was marked by extremes of popularity and then seething hatred. The time of His human flesh is coming to a conclusion. He is in Jerusalem, the place, Herod's temple. Imagine what it must have been like uh, that morning moving from Bethany to uh, see Jerusalem on the hill and coming to the temple. This is not Solomon's temple, neither is this Zerubbabel's temple, but this is Herod's temple, still a magnificent uh, structure. Someone has done a 3D little uh, picture of it. Uh, If you'll show that, I think it's just... 45 seconds. Imagine yourself in that temple. There you are, listening to the greatest teacher-preacher that there's ever been. He is preaching about eternities, preaching about relationships. The people are drinking in every last drop. But you look over to the side, and there are these religious leaders, the political uh, quasi-leadership uh, of the day. They too are listening to Jesus, but not with the same intent. They have their great uh, religious garb on, and they are angry looks on their face. These are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Herodotans. There they are. They are infuriated that this man has the gall to stand in the temple. Who gave you such authority to do this? They said, a little bit earlier in the chapter. And so let's go to verse number 33, and we find him telling a story. Here, another parable. There was a certain householder, another, he says, another of the same type of way of preaching. I just told one story, now let me tell you another. He had just given the story of the two sons, another. This is a very common story. He's going to use laboring out in a vineyard. Israel was uh, 
quite an agricultural country. Many of the people had this, grew something, if not almost everybody. Israel was covered with grapevines. The climate was perfect for it. The soil was ideal for it. And grapevines actually have been said by historians to be the, uh, the food that saved the world. When you think about it, uh, one of the biggest issues in most of the world is getting clean water. And you know, grapes are an amazing way that that's God's water filtration system. God brings it up through that soil, that contaminated water, and then it goes through these plants and comes out, and it's clear, beautiful. And, uh, you know, most people think of the word vines, and they think of uh, uh, wine, and uh, the Bible uses the word wine for both grape juice and in, uh, alcoholic, but, you know, that uh, wine back then was so diluted. In fact, that's what Peter said when he defended uh, people filled with the Holy Spirit. They said they can't be drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's impossible to drink enough uh, grape juice that has, uh, you know, a half percent uh, alcohol in it, which was just a disinfectant. And he said, you can't possibly be drunk at this time in the morning. And so it uh, vinegar, they used it for medicine, they used it for all kinds of uh, products. And so the vine, it's also uh, valuable because it was able to grow on hills. They didn't have to use up quality uh, valley land, which they put into uh, grazing, and they would have sheep, and also have wheat and things like that. They could grow it up on the hills. But because they grew it up on hills, it was a very intense way of uh, agriculture that took a lot of work. And notice what it says, that a householder, this man was an owner, and he owned quite a bit of uh, land and owned some vineyards. Now, there are eight parts to this story I'd like us to see this morning. First of all, we see labor expended. Verse number 33, here another parable. There was a certain householder owner which planted a vineyard, hedged it round about, digged a wine press in it, and built a tower and let it out to the husbandman. Householder, he was the owner. And so he decides to take a portion of his land and put it into vineyards. And so he knows it's going to take some serious amount of labor. Notice what he does. He hedges it. Vineyards are vulnerable to uh, uh, failure because of uh, pests, uh, lack of water, uh, weeds, um, varmints that come in, of course, even thieves that come along. And so they would often hedge it about. That means they would build a wall. It might be made out of rocks or even thorns. In fact, uh, even today, you'll go to certain parts of Israel and they will make a hedge about their vineyards with cactus. And I tell you what, some of those cactus are some seriously bad things, boy. You don't want to get around those. And so they hedge it. Notice it also says that he digged a wine press, another uh, very important thing, but also very hard to do. They would dig like a big uh, area made out of stone, put stone there. They would then throw the rocks down there, make sure it was um, covered enough. And then they would put the, the uh, grapes in there. They would uh, roll it over and out would come the, the juice that would go down to a lower area. Then they would have this a pulp there. And they would use that for different things, even for medical things like a poultice and things. And so there they had. They had this uh, very, a lot of work. It says they digged a wine press. And then it says he built a tower. The point I'm trying to make is this man put some serious money, some serious work into that. Towers were used for three purposes, for security, for shelter, 
and for storage. Uh, when someone, and they would have someone who'd actually watch and make sure that nobody was coming to steal or to do something uh, wrong in the vineyard there. Uh, they would also have a place to get out of the weather, maybe if uh, some inclement weather came along or even the heat. And then it'd be a place to uh, store their implements of uh, what they would necessary to work. The point is the owner took care to make sure that everything was provided. And so at this point, he's provided the land. He's put, put up the money for the crop. He's made sure everything is just as perfect as it could be for the people who are going to work in the vineyard. And I'm sure that any normal person would have been very grateful for the opportunity. One homespun philosopher said, an ungrateful man is like a hog under a tree eating acorns and never looking up to see where they came from. But these people were grateful. They weren't hogs just hogging all that uh, crop. No, they were, for the most part, I'm sure most people were grateful. There's a great amount of labor put out by the owner. Number two, we see a privilege extended. Verse 33. Notice what it says. He says he lends it out. He leases it out to the husbandmen, farmers, and went into a far country. And so here they are. They are tenant farmers. They don't own the land. They lease the land. They may lease a few acres. They may lease a big amount. Maybe they had several sons or daughters, or maybe they had people that they could work for them. And so they would lease the land. They would then uh, make sure that it was taken care of. I was talking with one of our neighbors who has 10 acres of uh, vineyards and asked him if he uh, made any money off that because he's a physician. And uh, he said, you know, I don't do the work. He said, I just lease it out to a man and he takes care of it all. He comes along, he takes care of the cultivating, he sprays the field and then he just pays me a little bit uh, here. And that's what was going on here. And so uh, these hearers would have uh, completely understood and uh, they would have been grateful to hear the story about how this householder, this owner had all this property and let he, yet he leased it out to others. And you know, uh, people who have a thankful heart are happy people. And I'm sure these people were happy to see, oh, that's how it's done. And uh, that's the way it should be. And so there was labor, there was privilege. And of course, after there's labor and after there's privilege, the, you know, we don't get these responsibilities and these privileges without some pay. And number three, there's a fruit expected. Look at verse 34. In fact, uh, let's read verse 34 together. Ready? Begin. And when the time of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. It says the time of fruit. That's harvest time. It's about this time of the year. They're beginning to already harvest uh, grapes around here now, and uh, they will do so for another 30, 45 days. And a very similar climate, a very similar area in uh, Israel there. And so it says that he sent his servants. So the owner, the householder, the one who owned the property, uh, sends his own personal servants, sends them out to the husbandmen, the tenant farmers, to collect the lease payments for all that they've been given. They've been given land. They've been given a crop. They've been given a, a tower. They have uh, all this given to them graciously by the owner. And he doesn't expect much, just a little lease payment and make sure that uh, it's taken care of. And it's only his rightful due. 
You know, it's an interesting thing. The Bible certainly teaches and supports uh, uh, good capitalism, not uh, greedy capitalism, but good capitalism. And uh, some people say, well, capitalism creates inequality. Well, it happens at times, but I like what Winston Churchill uh, said when they fought communism. He said, you know, uh, socialism does bring equality. It brings a, an equality and a sharing of misery. <laughs> and I hope we will remember that in our uh, upcoming election in 2020. But at any rate, uh, so it was a capitalistic situation going on here. You, uh, if you're going to be there, you have to pay. And uh, you get all these blessings, you get all these privileges, it's only right that you pay. Verse number, or the fourth thing that we see is uh, we see a selfishness exhibited. Verse number 35, and the husbandman took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another one. Shocking. Jesus is telling the story. Here he is in that temple. The people are listening to him. The uh, the Pharisees and the fake religious leaders are listening to him, and they know that Jesus probably is going to zing them, but they couldn't help themselves get involved in this story. And so he tells the story. He said the, the owner of the property sends his servant. Unbelievably, these tenant farmers take the first one and they beat him. Now, that word beat is not just, you know, like a little tap or you know, slap or something like that. Actually, when you read the uh, Greek word there, it means that they were made bloody. I mean, they just beat them mercilessly. And if you've ever seen a, a fight, uh, it's a terrible thing to see. I remember coming out of Dodger Stadium years ago, and there was some crazy fight going on. Man, it just sends shivers up and down. You know, everybody just beating on each other, you know, bloody. And these people were just bloody. They bloodied this man. And then it says they killed another. I mean, there's no even... He doesn't explain it. He just simply says they killed him. I mean, just like immediately, just stuck a spear in him or a sword in him, but killed him. And then they stoned the third one. Now, if you read the parallel passage in the book of Mark, I think it's chapter 12, you can see a little bit more. He, uh, uh, Mark kind of explains a little more. He sends the first one, and then the second one comes, and then the third one comes. Here it kind of groups it all together, but the fact is still the same. Beat one instantly killed the other, just stabbed him. And the third one, they put him down in a hole so he couldn't get out and then took big giant rocks and just threw it on him one at a time, crushed him until he was just a bloody mess. Unbelievable. Incredible. Thanklessness. I mean, can you imagine? Here, they had been given everything. They were not rich people and uh, they didn't have land. Here, this gracious owner, this wonderful person who gave them a place, he gave them a job, gave them something to do, gave them a beautiful tower, gave them a wine press, gave them a job. Unbelievable all that he did. And this is how they treat the owner. They wanted everything the owner had. They wanted all they had. They were just unthankful, ungrateful people. Thankfulness, being grateful for who has brought us to this point? One of my heroes uh, in the past is uh, the late uh, President Ronald Reagan. And I know he wasn't a perfect man, but I'll tell you one thing. I appreciate so much, uh, so much of his history. But they say that in his uh, office, in the Oval Office, he had a very unusual picture. 
I've mentioned it before, and I love the story. In the Oval Office, he had a picture of a turtle sitting on a fence post. People would come into the Oval Office and see that picture there and say, what in the world? Why would you have a picture like that? He said, you know, I have that because I look up there, and he said, anytime I get the feeling like maybe I'm somebody, or somehow I've, you know, so successful, or I get just a little bit proud, I remember this sense that I didn't get here by myself. Just like that turtle didn't get up on that fence post by itself. The same way I didn't get here to this high place by myself. The God is the provider of everything we have. Folks, I feel like a turtle on a fence post this morning. I didn't get where I'm at because anything I did, it's God. Notice the fifth part of the lesson, and that is graciousness expressed. Verse number 36. Now, if I was the owner, I would have, that would, man, I mean, after the first servant, I would have sent the police in. After the second guy was killed, I would have sent the army in. After the third one, I would have got an atomic bomb and said, that's it, you guys are gone. I bombed them. But notice the graciousness of this owner, verse 35. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent to them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. Last of all. Now, Jesus is drawing these people into this story. Brilliant terminology. Last of all, he sends his son. Again, uh, the synoptic gospel of Mark says his only son. The owner sends his only son. Remember now these parables are all uh, teaching uh, parts of theology, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But it says he sends his only son son. Surely they will reverence my son. They will reverence Jesus Christ, who really he's referring to. It would be nice if people would reverence Jesus Christ. It would be nice if people would reverence God this morning. It would be wonderful people would reverence and give respect to the Bible. And yet on every form today, we have people disrespecting the things of God. And I was disheartened this week as you see the Democratic platform. They have openly said, we are now reaching out to people who have no faith because the Republicans, you know, supposedly are reaching people of faith. We're going to reach out to people who have no faith, the people who are anti-God, people who are anti-Bible, the people like Taylor Swift, uh, pop singer, rock singer, whatever kind of singer she is, she uh, got up there and publicly said, we should get behind the Equality Act, which is nothing about equality, but rather just a pushing the uh, LBGT, whatever, uh, whatever they call that thing, the gay, uh, the homosexual, their platform. How crazy have we gotten so that we say, we're going we're gonna to push things that are anti-God, anti-biblical, and that's being a good American. Crazy. But uh, if we're expecting people to respect God and respect Jesus and respect the Bible, unfortunately, it's never been that way, and it just gets worse, it seems like, with this society. Notice number six, a rebellion experienced. Number 30, verse number 38, but when the husband saw the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. 
and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. Now, beyond any comprehension, how could this possibly be? First of all, these people had no money. They had no job. They had no land. They didn't really have anything. So this benevolent, wonderful owner provides this amazing opportunity for them to work, gives them the implements, gives them a place to get out of the, uh, the weather, gives them everything, and then uh, says, all I ask is when it's harvest time, I get a fair price for what I've given you. When harvest time comes, not only did they not give it to him, but then they beat his servants and killed. And now he sent his son, and it says they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. By the way, for those of you who are uh, those, you're, you're a thinking Christian, you have some Bible background, you'll know it says when they took Jesus and they crucified him outside of the city. Here it says they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. Here Jesus tells this story. Now, it's an unusual story. It is, part of it is very common, part of it is, can be seen, but then it gets a little bit unusual. Now, these religious leaders had been drawn into these stories before, and it never turned out good for them in the past. And I'm sure they knew that this, he was about ready to lower the boom on them, but they couldn't help have their interest peaked in this story. And so here they were, they were listening. What's he going to say next? Now, we find the next part of the story, and that is judgment explained. Verse number 40, and when the Lord therefore of the vineyard come, what will he do to these husbandmen? Here Jesus used a powerful question to draw them in. The use of power questions is an amazing tool of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just going to lower the boom on them. He was going to get them involved, get them thinking. You know, asking questions is a great thing to do. It's a great thing to do with people we meet and to get them involved and maybe start a spiritual conversation rather than just say, hey, John, how about saying, uh, how was your weekend? What did you do fun? What's been going on in your life lately? How's it going for you? Those are the kind of questions that are power questions. They invoke an answer. And Jesus used a power question. He said, now, what do you think? What do you think the owner is going to do to these evil tenant farmers? What would the householder do to these husbandmen, as the King James says it? Well, it says, verse 41, they say unto him, and they can't even help themselves. They have to answer. They say unto him, well, he will miserably destroy those wicked, those evil farmers, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which render him the fruits in their season. Now, verse 42, Jesus now says unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures? <laughs> now, uh, that, uh, that was sarcasm because every Pharisee read scripture. In fact, they had to memorize much of the Old Testament. They knew scripture. But he said, you know what? You have read it. You have memorized it. You have studied it but you've never really read it. You've never really studied it. And there today are colleges and theology, uh, 
theological seminaries who will study the Bible, but don't really study the Bible. They will look into Scripture, but don't really look into Scripture. People will talk about Jesus, but don't really think about Jesus. Here, Jesus said, have you never read in Scripture? By the way, the word Scripture is the Greek word graphe, the written word. Aren't we thankful for the written word this morning? You don't have to look at me and say, well, you know, some, uh, some pastor handed it down to this pastor and to this guy and to this guy. Finally, today we come here and we can listen to our pastor. No, folks, all week long, you can read scripture, the written word of God, and it never, never changes. I'll get up tomorrow morning and it's the same as I went to bed on last night. It's never changes. It's there always. And it says, did you never read in scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here Jesus quotes the Old Testament. I say, here Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. People who are Christians love the Old Testament, just like they love the New Testament. They just rightly divide it. They love the Old Testament. Jesus loved the Old Testament. Not only did he love it, but he validated its inerrancy. And you know, today, anybody who uh, denies the uh, inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture doesn't even realize that our Savior put his stamp of approval on the Old Testament. Now, it's true that much of the New Testament was written after the time of Christ, but one thing we can be sure of this morning and is the absolute inerrancy of the Old Testament. We can as well as the New Testament, but thank God that Jesus loved the Scripture. And here he said, have you not read the written Word of God? Here he quotes from Psalm 118. He said, have you never read this? This cornerstone was rejected by the builders. Now what's a cornerstone? A cornerstone is just that. It is a corner of a building. Most of the buildings were stone. Maybe we saw that uh, Herod's temple there. Imagine this stone. Now, we're not talking about just one little stone. I remember uh, when we started this building 19 years ago, uh, I was here with the fellow who was helping us uh, lay out the first stake. And uh, I mean, uh, he must have taken two or three days. And uh, I know he got frustrated with me because I was pushing him. Come on, man, get that thing set, you know? And uh, he told me then, he said, you know, this first corner of this building is going to be the, it is going to be the reference point for every other building on this campus. So he said, he said, if we don't get it right, then everything's going to be off. We had a, uh, we had a architect who drew a master plan, but this one corner, and that, that was this far corner over here, he said, it has to be perfect. It has to be absolute right because everything's going to come off of that. That's the cornerstone. That's uh, what it was then. The cornerstone set all the angles. If it wasn't level, if it wasn't plumb, if it wasn't done just right, the cornerstone also had to be a perfect rock. I mean, it couldn't have any fractures in it, couldn't have any cracks in it because, uh, you know, it might be okay now, but if the, all the weight of that building was on that cornerstone, I mean, it had to be solid. It had to be perfect. It had to be set just right. Jesus is a perfect rock. He is a perfect, he has perfect angles, and he's always the cornerstone of anything good, of every life. He is the cornerstone, and so here's, what he, here's where he's going. 
Now, he said the cornerstone, however, being a perfect rock, was discarded by the builders, but later picked up again. Now, what is he referring to? First of all, Jesus was referring to Israel. Israel, historically, has been a discarded nation. There has never been a place for Israel in many of the countries. In fact, some countries have had terrible history with Israel. I noticed that this past week, the president of Germany went to Poland, and he publicly apologized for the atrocities that German uh, occupation of Poland, where they killed over three million Polish, most of them uh, Jewish people. But the Jewish people have been hated by so many nations. And even today, we have congressmen in our own country who hate Israel. And here, Israel has been a discarded nation. But I will remind you someday that God is going to pick Israel up. And all you have to do is read the book of Romans and realize that all Israel is going to be saved someday. And so it is a cornerstone of history. Israel is that cornerstone. But really, I think uh, there's a double meaning here. Maybe primarily Jesus' meaning in this message that it is Him. Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. And the reason we think that is because of what Scripture teaches. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, please, if you would, in verse number 10. And here... Peter on the day of Pentecost, or excuse me, here, Peter is preaching to uh, leaders of Israel. In verse number 10, be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I always like that he throws in Nazareth, that city that nobody loved, that other side of the track city, Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye crucified. And he didn't mind calling a spade, a spade, you killed him, whom God raised from the dead. Even by him does this man stand here before you hold. This man had been healed. Then verse 11, notice he brings scripture in. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. This is the cornerstone. He quotes again Psalm 118. Interesting how Psalm 118 is a focus of the last week of the life of Christ. It was the same things that the children did when Jesus came into the city and they shouted out their hosannas. Here we find this rejected cornerstone is the crucified Christ. Then we have a restored cornerstone. We see the resurrected Christ. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. Here we find Peter preaching again and he got that truth of the cornerstone. Verse chapter 2 and verse 6, wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, chosen by God, perfect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded, or you won't be ashamed at the second coming. You won't be ashamed when you stand before God. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. And if you don't believe, I'm telling you what, it won't be precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. What is he referring to? He is referring to the fact that Jesus Christ was rejected, but thank God Jesus, God brought him back. He is the restored cornerstone. Notice what uh, he had, Jesus had said in the story. Not only does he talk about a cornerstone, but he talked about 
faithful servants that the evil tenant farmers had killed. Who were these faithful servants? What lessons are we learning from this? We are learning that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Israel. He is the cornerstone of life. He is the cornerstone of our salvation. He was discarded. He is disrespected. Thank God he is brought back by Father God. Who are these servants that they killed? These are the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. Isaiah, history says, was sawn asunder with a wood saw. It may be exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 37 says when it says some of these great men of faith were sawn asunder. Jeremiah was put in a pit, essentially a sewage pit. Ezekiel was rejected. Amos had to run for his life. Micah smashed in the face by tolerant people. <laughs> tolerant people. They just slammed. First Kings chapter 22, he was smashed in his face by people because of his preaching. And that's how Israel treated the prophets. And so in this story, the owner that's God, the Father. In this story, He sent to them servants. Those are prophets. The evil tenant farmers basically are the people who reject God of all ages, but especially Israel. And He sent them to them, and they are inexcusable. Why? You say, well, they probably didn't know that, uh, that when the sun came, they probably didn't know it was really the sun. Oh, they knew it was the sun. Because in verse 38, it says, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Did the people in Jesus' time know that Jesus was God? They did. This is the heir. Did the Pharisees know? Did the Essenes know? Did the Sadducees know? Did the false teachers know that Jesus was God? This verse says, this is the heir. He is God. He is God. By the way, this is a, a great a story again, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit behind the scenes, but this is a great reminder of the deity of Christ. Notice what it says. It says God sent prophets first. He sent prophets first, and then He sent the Son. Jesus is not a prophet, although He's prophet, priest, and king, but He is not merely a prophet. If you go to the Muslim community, they'll say, oh, we love Jesus. He's a great prophet. You go to the Sikh community, they will say, yes, Jesus was a great prophet. There are many people who say Jesus was a great prophet, but this verse here says he is the heir. <laughs> he's not just a prophet, he's the heir. He is the son, and the book of Mark says he is the only son of this person who owned everything. God owns everything. He has provided so much for us. He has given so much for us. He'd say, well, what was their issue? What was their feeling? Well, look at verse 38 again. It says, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. They were money hungry. The Bible says the root of all evil is eventually the love of money. Every evil there is eventually comes down to the love of money. Everything. Drug abuse, um, all the human trafficking that's going on, all the crime, all the craziness. Eventually, Follow the money. That's where it comes down to. The love of money is the root of all evil. Here it says they wanted money. They wanted popularity. These fake religious leaders, 
were tired of sharing the popularity with Jesus. They were tired of get, him getting all the you know, popular headlines. They wanted it too, and that meant eventually money. Verse 43, therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God. <laughs> now Jesus begins to get as clear and as uh, unmistakable. He may have told a story before, and now he's looking those guys eyeball to eyeball. He's staring them down. He says, the kingdom of God is taken from you, and as a nation it is given to another who will bring forth fruits. And by and large, that's exactly what's happened to Israel. Israel gave up their, their Savior. They gave up their God. They said, let the blood of Jesus be on us and on our children and on our children's children. And that came to pass. And really, Israel was a wandering nation for 2,000 years until about 60, 70 years ago in 1948 when at least a, a little bit of, uh, we see a little, uh, a little sprig of olive tree beginning to bloom there in the Middle East. But Israel, exactly what Jesus said here is exa exactly what's happened. Israel has lost their Savior. If you go to Israel today, they don't have Jesus as Savior. They don't proclaim Jesus as their Lord. But uh, thank God, He's going to bring Israel back. But notice verse 44. And my friend Jesus now, like I mentioned before, if there's ever a passage where Jesus gets direct, here he gets it. Verse 44, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. People say, well, what? You know, I've broken God's commandments. It's bad. But the worst thing is when God's commandments break us. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. What would we think about these evil tenant farmers who've been given everything, everything, everything they could ever want? They were given water. They were given food. They were given implements. They were given a job. They were given everything. And all that the owner wanted was some pay. He wanted their faith. He wanted their love. He wanted their honor. He wanted their respect. But they had none to give. You'd say, is God a gracious God? Oh, you better believe it. He is a loving and a merciful God. But I want you to notice this verse. He is also a just God. Now, I know in this snowflake world we live in, nobody likes to talk about the fact that God is a, uh, is a God of justice. But notice what it says. It says, when God's judgment falls, it will grind him to powder. Powder. I'm not talking about just something that happens. It says, grind him to powder. Is our God a patient God? Oh, yes. Thank God he is. Amen. Is our God a merciful God? Hallelujah. Thank God he is. Is his mercy, uh, it, does it last forever? Yes, it lasts forever. But I will tell you, there comes a time when we pull ourselves out of God's mercy. We say, I don't want God. What a terrible thing. By the way, this is really, I think, a reiteration of Daniel chapter 2, where that beast was there, and there's a rock that came and ground that beast down to just a, a powder. And I think that's what's happening here. Now, Jesus ends this by exposing their reaction. Number eight. First of all, 
a labor expended. Number two, a privilege extended. Number three, fruit expected. Number four, selfishness exhibited. Number five, graciousness expressed. Number six, rebellion experienced. Number seven, judgment executed. And finally, a reaction exposed. Look at verse 45. And when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. <laughs> Woo! The chickens come home to roost. All of a sudden, they're like... Their eyes are now opened. They are open. Oh, they have been convicted. They've been preached to. They've been, he's given them scripture. He has told them a story. He didn't pull any punches. He let them have it with both barrels. He was loving. He was kind. He told them everything. And then they repented and accepted Christ and said, we're so uh, sad for all have we've rejected the Father for all these years. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was the case? But it says in verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. <laughs> Unbelievable. After all of this, you would think they would just say, I don't want to be ground to powder. I mean, you say, well, I want to be saved because God is so good. Amen. I want to be saved because God is so loving. Amen. But I will tell you this, if the only reason you get saved is because you don't want to go to hell, that's a good enough reason. I don't want to be ground to powder. <laughs> I don't want to be just uh, lose my family, my everything. Thank God that he saves and he still will save. And yet these people hated him so much, they would have killed him, except for it had been for the fear of man. And they were so afraid of losing the respect of the people that they were more interested in losing the respect of God. 2,000 years, one of the most egregious cases of ungratefulness, one of the most extreme cases of unthankfulness that there ever was. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this morning our loved ones and friends and others in Florida, Georgia, and southeast part of our United States and other places are facing a catastrophic hurricane. It may or may not, and whatever it does, it's going to be, I'm sure, a terrible disaster in many respects. Last summer, California just suffered through such a fire season, and so many people suffered in people in our own church and family there in paradise and other places. But you know, we often don't think about how grateful we ought to be just because we have running water. They were telling the folks in Florida, you need to make preparations. You may not have water for at least a week. I remember when the Katrina came, we were there just a few uh, weeks after Katrina hit Mississippi and Louisiana. And I remember still to this day, being taken to Waveland, Mississippi. They're one of the little coastal towns. And I've never in my life seen anything like it. The storm surge was so big and so large. It went, I think, seven miles inland. And uh, you could go by. There's a pine thickets there of uh, Mississippi. About eight feet to ten feet up, uh, the trees were all burnt. I said, man, what happened to all these trees? They get burnt. He said, no, that's the salt water. The sea surged like five or six miles in eight, ten feet tall. I mean, it was terrible. Waveland, Mississippi was just gone. I mean, it looked like an atomic bomb. There's no neighborhoods, just rubble. And uh, many people lost their lives. And when hurricanes are 
when things like that, we begin to realize how thankful we are. Thank God for running water. Thank God for electricity. I remember we were there in Mississippi. I mean, people were fighting over gas. I mean, they're punching each other. And it was terrible because if gas, the only thing you get those generators going. And they were having a hard time getting gas down to those people. And it was just a terrible thing. Folks, the garbage wasn't being picked up. You couldn't even get down the roads because all the uh, trees were over it. And the fire here just last summer. You know, I don't think we realize how good God is to us. If it were not for the mercies of God, we would be consumed here this morning. Thank God for garbage pickup and water. Thank God for all the good things. And thank God for all the things that he does for us. And here, how terrible, how ungrateful would it be to realize all that God's done for us. I was reading in Psalm 104 this morning, my personal devotion time, and just having a neat time with the Lord. And Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. And, and it has all the things that God has done. And by the way, a good uh, verse in there about verse 20 or so about the fact that God said he will never let the earth be covered by water again. And I thought, well, that should be a good answer to the climate people who say that, you know, the earth is going to melt down. It's going to be all covered. No, God said, I will never allow that to happen again. Go back to Noah's flood. He said, it's not going to happen. Thank God that the waters are not going to cover the earth again. Thank God for all the things he does. This parable, as I was reading through it, it just realized how grateful we ought to be for, to God for everything. And of course, number one, we ought to be thankful for the fact that God has given us his son. Let's receive him. How ungrateful would it be to say, I don't want Jesus, after all that God has done, to say, no, I don't want Jesus? How incredibly ungrateful. And no wonder God can rightfully ground them to powder who reject his son. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.